This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jarrett Murphy from City Limits. Welcome to Max and Murphy. It's the day after Election Day 2019, and we are here absorbing the results from an off-year election that was actually surprisingly interesting in terms of some of the stuff on the ballot and some of the uh, dynamics that we saw play out. Right. This would have been extremely quiet if there was no special public advocate election, if Richard Brown, you know, hadn't gotten ill and died or already announced he wasn't running again, uh, and if there was no Charter Revision Commission. But those were, like, the, the interesting things happening. Right. Plus, it was the inaugural early voting session, so that was kind of adding a little bit of intrigue, although only 60,000 New York City voters took advantage of early voting, which hopefully we'll see an increase next year. Right. Uh, right. You took part in regular election day voting. I took I part in early voting. Uh, I was one of the one of the first early voters in New York City. Um, it was intriguing to me. I mean, a lot of it depends on your poll place and how it goes and where it is and all that stuff. Um, but, it, you know, it, I found it helpful to be able to just go on a Saturday and go vote whenever I wanted. Um the printing of the ballot on demand looked to me like a potential uh, disaster in waiting, um, but it went smoothly, and you know we'll see how it goes in in the future. I think next year, when it, when turnout is expected to be huge, um, early voting could come in very handy, and hopefully more people will take advantage of it to to cut down on the long lines. Yeah, there was some reaction to the low numbers of early voters this year, and you know talking about the cost. Per voter, obviously That's these are silly. these are well-staffed sites. But obviously, this was a dry run, and in some ways, the, the timing worked out great because you had an election that was citywide. Everyone had to come out. Sometimes, in off-year elections, is not the case. There are some districts that literally have no races, so it was a good test. And I think generally, the reviews were pretty solid. I certainly found on election day voting that the use of the tablets to find your address and then to find your name and have you sign. It went very smoothly, um, which I think speaks well to the technology and maybe the training um, that's done. I, I certainly have noticed in my neighborhood, I don't know if this is true in yours, that a new a new and proud generation of poll workers has come in, huh. um, maybe a little bit um, more energetic uh, than, than the ones that okay. have been doing it for, for many, many yeah. years, and they seem uh, very much on the ball. So that, that worked out well. Well, I had this early voting site that was not very convenient for me in terms of location, but I made it a whole activity, of course, and got there, and the convenient part was doing it on a Saturday, like I said. Um, so I don't know the normal poll workers where I wound up voting, um, but, you know, I think that some of the questions that always come up around New York City elections are going to continue to come up with this new system, with the electronic poll books, with these many days of early voting, which relate to poll worker training. And, you know, there are huge challenges with turnover and they have to do this training all over again. We wrote a story um, at Gotham Gazette a few months back about the question of a municipal worker, poll worker program and why that's never really gained any traction, mm -hmm. even though elected officials like the idea, the board of mm -hmm. elections loves the idea. Um, so that could be something interesting to sort of I don't know, keep pushing into the discussion because it, it could help. Um, I think, you know, going through the, with the electronic poll books, I, you know, those are, seem to me a little bit faster than the old fashioned style, but not by that much. Mm -hmm. And I think there could be some tweaks to that that could be worth watching 
almost like a check-in system where the voter can put their own name in mm -hmm. and then it gets sent to the poll worker. You know, you almost do it in line like they do it like sandwich shops when things get really busy you sort of send right. someone with a little tablet right. anyway i have some ideas on that I'll, I'll i'll work out the kinks turnout overall though 15 yeah. percent. i mean it's funny i i typically complain about that but for this Huge. kind of election it seems that seems like a you know a massive crowds voting Seven hundred thousand some odd voters in the public advocate race which is the uh the one citywide official that was up for for election you know, in the 2009 mayoral race, only about a million people voted, yeah. and that was a mayoral race. Yeah. So, uh, and it's about 300,000 or so more people than voted in the public advocate race in February. In February. So that is and a... The, but, and that also had like 19 candidates trying to right. get out the vote. Right. Um, yeah, no, I was kind of encouraged by that. I was I was pleasantly surprised by the, by the turnout. And again, I think that's really attributable to the fact that in this... Trump era, we've just seen such an uptick in civic engagement that, mm -hmm. um, again, I think it portends very interestingly for 2020 and what we're going to see. And I'm just, I'm already nervous and bracing <laughs> for what the uh, lines at the poll sites are going to look like, even with early voting. But we can. We and I have to say, it's that. it's it's almost too obvious to mention, but that's exactly the kind of thing I specialize in mentioning, is that competitive elections help drive turnout. Yeah. You had 180,000 people vote in the Queen's DA race, even though that was competitive only in the strictest sense and that there were competitors. Uh, but that still was more than three times as many voted in the last race Richard Brown had four right, years ago right. or four years before that or four years before that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you want to find out the secret to solving the turnout problem, it probably is having competitive elections. Yeah, I mean, but that's also tricky because it was really good that Republicans ran somebody, but they had to find a Democrat to take their line who had no name recognition. You know, it goes back. It's it's very good that there were mm -hmm. competitors and there was at least something and they had one debate on New York One and there was, you know, there was some stuff going on even though, of course, for just about any of the five boroughs, the Democratic primary is, is a done deal. But, um, you know, it also speaks to this idea that the Republican Party will hopefully start to realize, you know, it's important to run somebody in every race, think about these things early, um, you know, develop more of a bench. That's what the new state chair, Nick Langworthy, says he's going to do. You know, we'll see. Um, we'll be. We'll hopefully talk to him sometime uh, coming up soon. But that gets us back to this public advocate election where you had a, a sitting elected official with a decent amount of a base and name recognition in Joe Borelli, who we obviously spoke to, have spoken to twice recently on this podcast. Um, and again, you know, I didn't really see that much of a campaign from him mm -hmm. and the and the Republican Party apparatus across the city. I expected turnout to be a little lower than this and even said to him, you know, isn't this the kind of citywide election that Republicans could steal? And he sort of scoffed at that notion. And, you know, they didn't they didn't really campaign like this was something plausible. No. And a few weeks ago when the Patrolman's Benevolent Association uh, talked about coming out strongly against question two on the ballot questions, which we'll discuss shortly, you know, that had the potential to help Borelli if that were to actually get cops out. They tend to vote Republican. Mm -hmm. They He has a lot of support in that community. But that obviously didn't materialize. And it was interesting that, 
you know, Borelli is a visible spokesperson for Republicans and for President Trump. He appears on cable TV all the time. He got about 20% in that race against Williams. Murray, who was a sacrificial lamb, uh, got 25% or so uh, in a race against Melinda Katz for Queens DA. Now, I don't know if that's because of the unique party registration or, or um, party breakdown or ideological breakdown of Queens versus the city, but it's interesting that, that Murray, who was unknown, unknown yeah. uh, got one out of four votes, but Borelli uh, did slightly worse than that. Right. I, was, I was surprised by that. I think what you said gets at it, which is the idea that Brooklyn especially will heavily influence any citywide election result. But it's also indicative of the fact that, you know, um, in a citywide race, the Republican candidate didn't outperform, you know, sort of a, a generic uh, Democrat, Republican, 80-20 type of, you know, 75-25 mm-hmm. type of result. Um You know, it is difficult, too, though, for Borelli to break out of being, you know, South Shore, Staten Islander versus a guy in Jemani Williams who ran statewide and then just had, you know, a citywide election, special election that he won, followed by running again. I mean, that, you know, that Mm -hmm. is tough. Um, One of the things that, you know, there's very little exit polling these days, period, because it's expensive and it's been seen to be problematic. And obviously, there wasn't going to be exit polling in this race. But I would love to have known why... What was the reason people came to the polls? What was the thing that yeah. pulled them? Was it that they wanted to make sure Jumani Williams won? Was it that they wanted to weigh in the ballot questions? Just folks who vote all the time because they like the sticker. Um, that would be really interesting to me to see what was the push and what was the pull here. And I think that we come down to very individual choices. But I wonder if there were trends on that. Right, and and right, it's going to be challenging to know that. But I do think it's the people who voted the seven hundred thousand plus people who voted are mostly people who vote all the time, mix in a few people who've really been reinvigorated, like I said, in the sort of Trump era, and then maybe a, a small number who were excited about a ballot, one of the ballot proposals or a specific candidate. Um, you know, and then you had the Melinda Katz targeting of her voters to make sure they came out to just not have anything crazy happen um, in that race. Um, but my, my sense is that there's just a group of people, mm-hmm. right, the, the super prime voters or whatever that, you know, come out every election. And now you have a little bit of a heightened atmosphere around that. Um, but but we don't know. Um, so we've discussed the public advocate race. We've yeah. alluded a couple well, times to, to Melinda Katz. Well, before before yeah. we move on, though, any thoughts on what Jermani Williams, you know, we expected it. But what does this sort of mean now that he's got the rest of this term? He's got the full two more years. You know, he's got the rest of this year and the two more years that were at stake in this election. Does that mean anything for him, the city? It's interesting. I mean, he referred a few times in our conversation with him a couple of weeks ago as to how he feels he's sort of just hitting his stride, getting his office set up. And obviously having to contest the election in February, coming into office shortly after that, then having to worry about this election. And and to most of us on the outside, it seemed like he had nothing to worry about. But obviously, if it's your name on the ballot, you have to worry about it. That obviously took some time, too. And now that is done. And we'll actually get to see what kind of a stamp he wants to put uh, on that office. He definitely is focusing primarily on housing issues. I think it's going to be a policy-focused advocacy as opposed to, say, an investigative one. Um, But exactly what direction he takes it in and what kind of a what kind of a foothold he has to, to get some oomph, some buzz, is interesting. And to what extent he'll pick fights with the mayors to do that, right. form alliances with the council. Obviously, as we'll talk about, I'm sure momentarily, eventually 2021 will begin to sweep everything into that dynamic. But he'll have an, a good year to kind of put his stamp on the office of what he wants to what he wants to focus on. Right. He put out, as he said, you know, he put out his initial report on how the city responds to people in, in you know, crisis around mental illness. 
it'll be interesting to see what are the other reports, where is he pushing the city? He's got some of his legislation around housing and rezonings um, that he wants to, to see move forward. He's working with the mayor on this paid vacation time legislation that was his from years ago that the mayor suddenly picked up earlier this year. Um, so that'll that'll be interesting. I do think you know his big issues of housing and policing will continue to probably be his main focus areas. He talked about doing this as you know with a community organizing lens and approach. And what will that look like? How is the public advocate's office really going to sort of activate people to put pressure on city hall? Um, and then the last thing I'll say is you know something that Borelli said to us actually has stuck with me a bit. Um, or, or, you know, he was saying throughout the campaign, which is that, you know, Jamani Williams, even if he's a little bit tough on a mostly ally Bill de Blasio, he's pulling him in most cases to the left. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's probably what we're going to see is, is Jamani Williams continue to put the pressure on de Blasio from the left, whereas... You know, there's just like continues to be mostly this gap of, of elected officials putting pressure on de Blasio from the right or the middle, mm -hmm. you know, so that that's sort of interesting to me. What's interesting, too, is the timing for him. By virtue of being elected now, he is going to be one of the very few uh, officials, the only citywide official, uh, no one else in the borough level very few or a minority of the city council right. who will still be in office come 2022 at least still in his, his same position, office yeah. so he'll there's a sense of stability there assuming he is reelected, which is likely um, a sense of stability there that might give him a unique position to you know prosecute particular mm -hmm. policies he wants to pursue it also means he will be the public advocate and therefore the kind of natural ally or rival to the current mayor and then also yes. to the next one um, which kind of puts him in, a, in an interesting position to bridge what will otherwise be almost an entire turnover of city government. And I don't think Jamani Williams is going to break what he's repeatedly said is his pledge not to run for mayor in 2021. I think he's going to sit that one out. But then that does create a very tricky dynamic for him. Is he going to be public advocate for 11 years? You know, what do you do after you win that reelection? You have the full first four-year term. Is he going to run again after that? Um, so, you know, it'll be interesting to watch for him. He ran for lieutenant governor. Does he dabble in statewide politics again? Is there somehow turnover in, in the Brooklyn congressional seat, you know, that he could run for? So, you know, something interesting to watch for his future. I'm sure he's not really thinking about that right now, but just for me, that's something... I'm thinking about because I don't see him jumping into that mayoral race. We should mention in the air, I have no idea how legitimate it is, how much support it has, is reconsidering term limits again because of the massive turnover that looms in 2021. And he he's a proponent of that. And, yeah. and I don't know if others are going to take that up, but obviously that would change the dynamic for everybody, including Giovanni mm -hmm. Williams. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point. Although I think most of the discussion, as he said, would be around just doing it for the city council. That's true. Right? That so is, keep the citywides yeah. and the borough presidents, I think, borough presidents on the two terms and maybe give the city council three, right. stagger it somehow. I don't know. That's interesting and, and worth talking about a little more. Just quickly, Melinda Katz, anything you're watching. I mean, I think balancing her promises that got pretty far left in the primary, you know, as she was competing with Tiffany Caban and squeaking out a recount with, you know, as she said, putting crime victims first, mm -hmm. trying to institute the sweeping uh, criminal justice reforms that came out of Albany, bail reform, discovery especially, looks like it's going to be pretty challenging for DA offices. Um, you know, Putting that mixed together as someone with no courtroom prosecutorial mm -hmm. experience, she's got some management experience, obviously, having been the BP, 
um, you know, that's a big that's a big challenge. But she's got a runway here to get ready because she pretty much knew after she won the recount that she was going to be the next DA starting in January. Right, exactly. And I think you know she has four years to uh, to to solidify her hold on that office. I remain unconvinced that the politics around criminal justice in this city have changed so much that a sitting DA would actually have much to worry about in terms of a primary challenge. I could be wrong on that. But for the most part, once you're elected DA, unless you do something really wrong, right. um, you, you can be there for a long time. I think so Katz might be secure regardless of what she does or how the landscape does or doesn't Fair. shift under her. I do sense that there is... Uh, and I don't know if this is, I suspect this is not in reaction to any actual change in the facts on the ground, but there is a feeling that uh, criminal justice reform has gone too far yeah. and there's going to be a swing back in the pendulum and that crime is going to tick up again. Of course, we've seen that movie before and it hasn't played out that way, but she may be able to to ride that to a, a more comfortable position between, as you said, her advocacy for some progressive reforms and her adherence to traditional, like, let's help victims out uh, approach to, to law and order. Yeah, I mean, there's this obvious continuum, and we saw this play out in the Queen's DA primary in fascinating fashion, where you have, like, people like Melinda Katz who are, you know, they're sort of more traditional Democratic liberal politicians who definitely want to bring progressive change to the criminal justice system. But then you have the Tiffany Cabans of the world and, you know, a growing size of the, the population that have more really radical views on what should happen. So... I am interested to see how she navigates that in this question of a primary challenge four Mm -hmm. years from now, because who knows what Tiffany Caban is going to do, but, you know, four years is a long time to wait, but you start raising money in in two and a half or three, right? Right. So uh, let's see what happens there in terms of her fulfilling some of those promises and navigating these changes, which... You know, you can have um, expectations around diversion programs. You can have, you know, the bail reform that's going to take place. All you need, even if the the sort of chorus of critics is more from the middle and the right, you know, a drumbeat of questions about how you're handling the office can just lead to a lot of uncertainty overall around you. As oh, totally. You, you know, Cy Vance is an example of that. I think another question, just to finish the discussion yeah. of, of uh, current BP, future BA, DA-elect <laughs> cats, um, one of the questions, obviously, is what her ambitions are. I mean, DA is one of those jobs you could, as I said, many yeah. people have hung on to for a generation or more, but if you are thinking of running for mayor, for Congress, for dog catcher, whatever it is, that might change the dynamic because you're not just getting reelected to a law enforcement post. You're looking to please a different and perhaps larger electorate. That's I pretty have no idea if that is on her radar screen. We should let right. her enjoy this, this right. position before we speculate on that. <laughs> right. But obviously that would change perhaps how, how she's going to strategize around that. All right. Perhaps the most interesting stuff that happened because we expected Jemani Williams and Melinda Katz to win easily, and they did, um, is these ballot proposals passing um, most folks are probably familiar that question one, the main feature was ranked choice voting that is now going to be instituted starting in 2021 for party primary and special elections, not general elections, which I think is very, very interesting that they made that decision and that distinction. Um, but it will have a, a significant impact on especially, well, primary party primaries and, and specials, but party primaries are obviously the bulk of the elections that happen compared to specials. Um, and it, it We'll get back to what it could mean, but mm-hmm. pretty significant. Very reform. significant, yes. And question two, obviously, one of several questions where, in in subtle or not so subtle ways, beyond the merits or the focus of the question itself, a shift 
in power from the mayor to other actors in government. So the conflict, uh, sorry, the uh, Civilian Complaint Review Board, um, the composition of it being changed somewhat to give the council more ability to directly appoint members, um, CCRB's uh, staff getting the right to issue subpoenas, um, to pursue cops who they believe lied to them if they were subject of investigations, um, and to demand from the police commissioner an explanation when he's going to deviate from their disciplinary recommendations. Um, and this guaranteed budget as well. And a well. guaranteed budget so, as well. Yeah. So this is several different, you know, subtle changes, altogether a stronger CCRB than exists now. Absolutely. And, you know, you saw a, a pretty serious opposition from the, the largest police union and their allies, and that was... Um, you know, again, I think if there was a lot more going on, they might not have paid that much attention to this, although they obviously don't want the CCRB to be beefed up at all. Um, but that will that will be interesting to see how these play out, especially in, in the sort of ongoing, you know, political atmosphere that we're in. Question three um, was this hodgepodge of stuff, which really was frustrating to me because, you know, you could want to see this you know, a ban on lobbying for people leaving top levels of city government extended from one year to two, which mm -hmm. is now going to happen. You could want that, but not want the city council to have advice and consent power over the, the corporation, corporation council. council and you right. had to sort of vote on them together, among other, other things related to the conflicts of interest board. I don't yeah. know. It was interesting, one of those kinds, you know, that's like the argument for a line Adam veto, right? Is that yeah. people to, to to strike uh, non-related parts of the bill. But that, I mean, this is obviously the Charter Commission sort of just deciding, like, we're going to bundle this stuff and get people to most likely approve it. Right. The assumption that it would be relatively controversial, yeah. which I suppose was, was safe. I mean, obviously, the Corp Council was the only one that uh, might have stirred serious opposition, I think. I know some people had questions with the shift, again, from direct mayoral control, complete mayoral control of the COIB to a, a more bifurcated mm -hmm. system. Question four was obviously about the uh, the budgeting. Uh, the independent, or I should say baseline budgets for the public advocate and borough presidents, changes in when the mayor releases an important estimate related to revenue, and in how modifications to the budget are handled and, and processed and, and reported. And then allowing the city to develop a rainy day fund. With state um, law with state approval, it up. Yes, yeah. and there's already a bill State Senator Brian Benjamin has introduced. We'll see if it gets a companion bill in the Assembly to allow the city to establish a rainy day fund. This all goes back to issues around the fiscal crisis and how much control the state has over the city budget. We won't go into all that right now. But, you know, the guaranteed budgets for the public advocate and the borough presidents, again, you know, interesting. People have talked about it for years and years, yes. and it, it, is, it is here. Many of these things are tweaks, right? They're tweaks, but they're important. They're significant, and they could have an impact uh, down the road. Question five. The least significant, perhaps important of them, land use changes, uh, allowing a sort of pre-certification process in ULERP, uh, which is the city's uniform land use review procedure, a seven-month procedure. Um, this gives borough presidents and community boards a heads up officially about uh, applications coming down the pipe. And then a second measure, which is to allow community boards, which frequently do not meet during the summer, to have some extra time for reviewing stuff uh, when a project comes to them during the summertime. The advanced pre-certification of a, of a project in ULERP, um, giving more notice to community boards and borough presidents, is not nothing, right? I mean, again, it, it sort of adds into the question of how much community import community boards should have, locals should have, and whether they can sort of 
influence development um, a little bit more than perhaps, you know, they have in the past. Um, yeah, no, I think, you know, the, the objection of these, quite, I mean, the New York Times, I know, said that they, they were, the Times editorial board said they were concerned that the added time to the Euler clock for the community boards was going to slow down development, which I think is a kind of non-objection. Um, the bigger one is whether this Charter Commission in general kind of whiffed on dealing with land use right. as, a, as a problem, but that's been discussed before. And so now we turn to what all this means uh, and kind of what's coming next. Obviously, Melinda Katz is going to not be borough president come early January. 45 days later, we'll have the first election of 2020. Right, a Queensboro president special election. Get ready. The excitement is palpable. Um, but, in, but it is, you know, right? I and mean, hey, people are, yeah, are, are in that race. Hey, politics is fun. <laughs> Um, right, right. No, there's yeah. several people who've already declared, other people sort of planning to or considering it. Um, you have three city council members already in, others thinking about it, and former city council members thinking about it. So that will be fascinating. You know, one of the most telling things last night was Melinda Katz gets up to give her, her victory speech. She's introduced by the Queen's Democratic Party leader, Gregory Meeks, the congressman. And the other person next to her is city council member Donovan Richards, who wants to be BP. Mm -hmm. He's one of those declared candidates. So that's interesting how he's trying to line up to be the favored candidate of the of the party establishment. And Richards is such an interesting um, candidate, I think, because while he's angling for that, he also has very progressive credentials that you could almost see if he wasn't angling for that support. He could mm -hmm. be the candidate of the more progressive side of the of the equation in the Democratic Party. So that'll be interesting. Jimmy Van Bramer, city council member, city council member Costa Constantinides, they're also in the race, and they're trying to position themselves on that pretty far left lane. Right, well. exactly. In a borough that obviously was recently, or, or a year ago, uh, the site of the, the Amazon saga, mm -hmm. br brief as it was. Uh, and then later in 2020, obviously, the attention of the world will be focused on the presidential race with, in February, the key primaries and in, in caucuses in Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. And then Super Tuesday in early March, if through some miracle the race isn't over by then, which is possible given the yeah. dynamics and the large field, New York State's primary in late April, which is kind of a mid-Atlantic primary, it's New York, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Connecticut, I think, Delaware as well, never forget Delaware, becomes potentially the sort of last battle of the presidential primary race. So could that be. could be could yeah. be interesting. Yeah, and, and just again, a reminder as we talk about the special election and then that and the um, presidential primary and everything else happening in 2020, the new ranked choice voting will not be part of that. It comes Correct. in in 2021 and only for city-level elections and party primaries and specials. Um, yeah, like I said at the start of this conversation, the turnout for 2020, starting with the presidential primary, even if it's already just about over, mm -hmm. um, I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. People are going to be chomping at the bit to go and vote for uh, a Democratic nominee here in New York City, you know, for president to take on Trump, assuming it's still looking like Trump at that point on the Republican <laughs> side. Trump. Um, and then, of course, we get into June next year with the congressional primaries, which are going to be fascinating. We have a bunch of sitting Democrats here in the city who are being challenged from the left, mostly. Mm -hmm. Some of them a rematch of, mm -hmm. of last year, 2018, Carol Maloney and Yvette Clark facing certainly those people. Elliot Engel uh, facing a, a, what appears to be an unusually stiff challenge. Gerald Nadler, yep. uh, a couple challengers. So we know about those. 
Uh, and then, uh, you know, there obviously are other races that, that could pop onto that radar screen, but those are the ones we know about. Right. There'll be the congressional primaries in June, same date, the state-level uh, primaries for the state legislature also will be interesting. There's already primaries popping up. I mean, we're going to really see this intra-party Democratic, Democratic Party, you know, fight uh, play out both in those congressional races and in some state legislative races. I should mention on the congressional side, obviously the Serrano seat is the very crowded yes, of race. Yes, of, good you know, point. Everyone and their brother and sister jumping yes. into that one uh, and a lot of uh, uh, both uh, well-established stars, rising stars in the party, people um, trying to... Fading uh, stars. Fading stars, yeah. uh, supernovas um, are, are in that race. And then, of course, in November... All hell broke loose. loose. Uh, But we'll see, you know, definitely contested congressional races, certainly upstate, probably on the island, and as close perhaps as Staten Island. Uh, And some state Senate races, I don't think Democratic control of the Senate is at risk. It doesn't appear to be. But I think the size of that majority could be at risk because of some of those suburban Mm -hmm. seats, the Long Island six, and then some of the upstate seats that are seen as more marginal. Yeah. And even, you know, we'll see what happens in the the New York City seat that just swung to Andrew Granardis in southern Brooklyn from Marty Golden. You know, who knows? Golden could give it another shot or somebody else could emerge as the Republican nominee unlikely that you see that that flip but with turnout driven by the presidential election who knows right and and especially the congressional race with max rose um trying to keep his seat will be very very interesting interesting to watch um final thoughts as we then look past that to 2021 Mm -hmm. where the ranked choice voting will come into play my thought exactly yesterday uh i was on a a different radio show not to be named (laughs) uh, and susan lerner who was on our podcast very recently called in to say that regardless of how you felt about ranked choice voting uh, and there were some doubts about it obviously that was a, a stark minority of people who came out to vote that really the the job now is for people to begin educating folks about how the system is going to work. Obviously, you can't really educate them in 2020 because that would confuse people because, as you said, it's not going to affect any races in that year, and it's never going to affect, uh, at least under this law, federal and state races. It's really only a local thing. But beginning to create the technology to make this all work, the computers and the algorithms, something the BOE, a lot of cynics would say, is not especially well equipped to do given its track record. Uh, And then as 2021 dawns, focusing on how this is going to affect voters and also seeing how it's going to affect candidate behavior. To me, that's the fascinating political science unknown is how are people running for office in 2021 going to react to the reality of ranked choice voting and the potential for alliances it creates? Potential for alliances, how people campaign. I mean, it's going to be a whole new world in some respects. In other respects, you know, I hope we don't get too far ahead of ourselves thinking that, like, politics as we know it is totally different because I don't think it will be, but but we'll see. I mean, there's going to be, there are going to be some major shifts, but I also think a lot of the key aspects of running for, let's say, mayor in New York City are going to remain the same. However, the idea that you want to appeal to as many people as possible who are going to come out and vote to be their first choice or their second, basically, I mean, that's that's basically what you're looking for, is going to change the game a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it is going to force candidates to diversify their approach to different 
uh, interest groups, ethnic groups, racial groups, etc., um, geographically, you know, diversified how they campaign. So it'll be it'll be very interesting. You know, you can't help. I can't help but start to think about what that mayoral primary will start to look like. We don't know the cast of characters and candidates that will be participating, um, but just the idea that you start to think about doing having that party primary in 2021, which is most likely going to determine who the next mayor is under this new system, starts to be a fascinating parlor game. It is. Much to think about. A lot of races between now and then, a lot of other news, too. Ben, I look forward to uh, covering it all with you. Indeed, and uh, stay tuned next week. We'll be joined by former City Council Speaker Christine Quinn for an interesting discussion about her week, her work, and her and her week. Future. We'll ask her yeah, how her week went. Sure, week, we're always very weekend. Yeah. Stay tuned for that. Mm-hmm.